The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning, and today we're going to be looking at verse 13. Uh, my intention today was to get into the rapture passage and talk about the rapture, but I kind of got hung up in verse 13, so uh, we'll move on next week. But uh, from 4.13 to 5.11, the context is about the second coming. Now, Paul's already talked about the second coming at the end of chapter 1. He talked about it at the end of chapter 2, and he talked about it at the end of chapter 3. And now he's going to deal with it again at the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5, and it's safe to say that eschatology is a major part of this letter. It's a major subject. Let's look at our text together. This is what, all we're going to do today is just cover verse 13, so it won't take us but a few minutes. <laughs> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. All right, we don't want you, he says, to be uninformed. The word uninformed here is from the Greek word agnoeo, and it means to be ignorant. So Paul's saying, look, I don't want you believers to be ignorant. It means unaware of, to be without understanding. And this is kind of a common phrase in Paul's writings, but he usually uses a phrase like this to introduce an important statement. Similar to we see Yeshua doing when Yeshua will say amen and amen. All right? So what was it that he didn't want them to be uninformed about? Well, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And then he says this, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Now, the word that here is hina in the Greek. It's a conjunction introducing the purpose, the aim, or the goal. It's called a hina purpose clause. So he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Because, or that, you may not grieve. So Paul wanted to remove both their ignorance and their grief. But the solution to their grief lay in removing their ignorance. That's really important that you see that here, okay? Knowing the Word of God is fundamental to all spiritual stability. Spiritual stability is related to the attitudes that you have it's not related to the circumstances you face in life. It's related to how you think, especially how you think about God. You show me a stable person in the midst of conflict, and I'll show you someone who knows God. For example, Paul in the book of Acts. He'd been beaten, and he was put in prison in stocks for preaching the gospel. Now, God told him to preach the gospel, so he's doing exactly what God told him to do, how God told him to do it, and he ends up being beaten and put in stocks. And it says, verse 25 of Acts 16 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now let me ask you, believer, can you even in the slightest way relate to this? Okay? First of all, you're not doing something wrong. You're doing what God told you to do. You're beaten. You're put in the inner prison in stocks, and it says they're praying, but they're not saying, God, get us out of here. God. They're just praying to God, and they're singing hymns. 
They're not rejoicing in their circumstances. They're rejoicing in their God who controls the circumstances. And it says the prisoners are listening. Can you imagine the effect this would have on people? These are Christians, and they've gone through all this, and they're just worshiping their God. If you know God, if you really know Him, it should always be easy to rejoice in Him. But we have to understand, people, biblical ignorance destroys stability. That's why as Christians we need to understand, we need to be familiar with, we need to know our Bibles. That's why we need to read them. We need to read them every day. We need to read them every year, cover to cover. And we need to read them year after year after year so we become familiar with the truth of the Word of God. That as Paul said, the Word of God will dwell in us richly. Dwell, it'll take up residence in us. Paul calls the people he's writing to brethren. And this is a technical term for believers. All right? And he tells them that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, Paul often uses this preposition here, about, to introduce answers, especially in the book of Corinthians. He uses it to produce answers that the Corinthians had asked him. So he'll say about, and then he'll answer a question they ask. And I really think that's exactly what's going on here. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul mentions how he couldn't endure any longer not knowing about them. He'd been away, and he's just burdened about how they are doing. So in verse 2, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. And then in verse 6, it says that Timothy came back. And when Timothy came back, he says he brought us good news about your faith and love. Well, it seems that Timothy brought more back than good news of their faith and love. He brought back questions that the Thessalonians had. And one of those questions was, what about believers who have died? What would happen to them at the parousia? Now, since Paul had left Thessalonica, some of the members have died. And they're grieving over them. And they thought, no, what happens now? They died before the Lord returns. Are they going to miss out on the glorious kingdom? What happens to them? So their question is about those who are asleep. That's the question they're asking. The word asleep here is koimao. And koimao is used in Scripture for both sleep and death. I think we understand that, right? Sleep is used here as a metaphor or a figure of speech. Now, a figure of speech directly compares one thing to another that we're familiar with. So sleep portrays what death means for a believer. No one has a problem with people taking a nap or going to sleep, right? Because you know they're going to wake up. Well, that's where the comparison is here. As the sleeper does not cease to exist when his body sleeps, so the dead person continues to exist. The grave is like a bed. Now, the Bible never describes the death of unbelievers as sleep. Sleeping is a euphemism for death in the ancient pagan writings and in the Scripture. And Jewish literature of the time could use sleep with the double sense of physical death and ongoing existence. The word cemetery comes from the word used here, koimao. And it means a place of sleep. The early Christians began to call their burial places cemeteries, which means 
dormitories or sleeping places. Because sleep as a metaphor for death implies that death is only temporary. You wake up from sleep. Yeshua used this term when he said just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. He said, in saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, people, Lazarus is dead, okay? He's been dead for four days. He's not taking a nap. But Yeshua viewed his resurrection as a waking up. Look what he says. He says, I go to what? Awaken him. The word awaken here is exupanizo, which means to wake up out of sleep. So he says, our Lazarus, our friend Lazarus, he's fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. He's talking about death. He's talking about resurrection. Paul was careful not to use the word sleep with reference to the death of Christ. Looking at verse 14. We're not going to get to this today. Just let me read it to show you something. For since we believe that Yeshua died, okay? Yeshua died and rose again, even so. Through Yeshua, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The only time the concept of sleep is used of our Lord's death is in the words, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, the difference between Yeshua's experience and that of believers is that he endured death, actual separation from God for the sins of the elect. Because of his death, Christian death has been transformed into sleep. Now, theologians and scholars, when talking about the death of a believer as sleep, will add that it's only the body that sleeps. Okay? The spirit, they say, goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. And they'll use passages like Luke 16 to prove a conscious existence after death. And they'll use verses like this one in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage <clears throat> and would rather be home, away from the body, and at home with the Lord. <clears throat> okay, so away from the body, at home with the Lord. Now, they use these, these verses attempting to prove that only the body sleeps. The soul spirit goes to be with the Lord. And people will say, well, doesn't this mean that, you know, Paul felt when he died his spirit would go to be with Christ right then? I don't think so. And we've gone over this many times, but until the second coming, nobody went into the presence of God. I shouldn't say nobody. Very few exceptions. Enoch, Elijah, I believe were exceptions. But that, generally, that's the rule. You don't go into the presence of God until the second coming. Now, so how do you explain this verse? Well, a couple ways. What we see here may be what's called a prolepsis. And we've gone over this before. Anybody remember what a prolepsis is? A prolepsis is a representation or assumption of a future act of development as if it's presently existing or accomplished. Let me, uh, let me give you an example real quick here. Mark 7, 14. It says, Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now, here's what Yeshua says to the people. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person can defile him. Was that true? Huh? Were they not at this time under the law? So could they eat something that would defile them? Yes. Yeah, so how could he say this then? It's a prolepsis. 
This is, it's so certain in the future, he talks about it as if it's already happened. But we know when Yeshua was on earth, the law was still in effect. Okay, so that's a prolepsis. Another way we could look at this verse is Paul maybe not talking about his physical body here. In other words, away from my body, I die. He may be talking about the body of Moses in the sense of to get out from the old covenant body of death in Moses is to be with the Lord. In other words, you move into the new covenant reality of faith in Christ. So he could be talking about that. Now, the predominant view of the church today is that when a person dies, their body goes to the grave and sleeps, and their soul or spirit goes to heaven. They, they, they go immediately into God's presence to wait for the resurrection of their body. That's the predominant view of the church today. The problem with this view is that according to the Bible, nobody goes to heaven prior to the second coming. Now, since the predominant view is that the second coming of Christ hasn't happened yet, that would mean nobody's in heaven. Look at what Yeshua said in Mark 10, 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, people are very confused about this. I would encourage you to grab some commentaries and read this and most of them will skip this. They won't even comment on it because they can't, they don't understand it. But what Yeshua is saying here is he's saying eternal life comes in the age to come, not in the age they're living in. And commenting on this, Sweet says this, which he's one of the few that will even touch it. He says, the age which is to follow the parousia, that's the age to come. And I think he's right. But so that's saying that nobody has eternal life yet, because the second coming hasn't happened, according to most believers. Now, to understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand this. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. The understanding of these two ages and when they change is fundamental to understanding the Scripture. Fundamental to understanding when eternal life is received. See, the New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. Now, you read the Bible and it says this age. No, no, it's this age for the writers, not this age for you. You live in the age to come. But to the New Testament writers, the age to come was future. It was future to them. But it was very near because the age they lived in was about to end. So this age came to an end with the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70 with the abolishment of the Old Covenant. The New Testament writers lived in what the Bible calls this age. This age of the Bible is the age of Old Covenant. It was about to pass away in the first century. So it should be clear to us that this age is not the Christian age in which we live. In the first century, the age of the Old Covenant was fading. It was about to end completely, and it did end completely, with the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. So if eternal life, I say if, I mean since, first class condition, if and it was, if eternal life was a condition of the age to come, then does that mean the New Testament saints who lived in this age didn't have eternal life? It does mean that. And we could ask the question this way. When did believers receive eternal life? And to answer that question, we first need to understand that prior to Yeshua's messianic work, man did not go to heaven when he died. 
When he died, he went to a holding place of the dead, and he waited for the atoning work of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. In the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they were prior to resurrection is Sheol. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word Hades. All right? Now, if Yeshua has not yet returned in his second coming, as the majority of the church teaches, then nobody has eternal life. Nobody's gone to heaven. If the dead have not yet been resurrected, which happens at the second coming, then nobody's in heaven yet. But if you ever go to a Christian funeral, where do they go at death? Matter of fact, it doesn't have to be a Christian funeral. Any funeral. Everybody that's dead goes where? Heaven. You ever been to a funeral that they're burning in hell right now? No, I've never heard that. I don't care what kind of a scoundrel or what kind of a a non-believing atheist, pedophile the person was, they're in a better place now. Really? How do you know that? Okay? But that's just, you know, that's kind of universalism there. Everybody goes to heaven. But again, you go to a Christian funeral and you ask a Christian, what happens to your loved one that died? Well, they went to heaven. Because that's where Christians go, right? But here they don't understand heaven is not open until the second coming. Because salvation was not completed until the return of Christ. Look at Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that's the cross, okay, right? He will appear a second time. That's the second coming. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He came the first time to deal with sin. He came the second time to save them who were waiting. This is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming. His appearing is said to be for salvation. Well, Peter basically says the same thing in 1 Peter 1.5. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when was the salvation ready to be revealed? In the last time, which would happen at the return of Christ. So if Christ has not returned, salvation is incomplete. No one has gone to heaven Here's what we have to understand, people. Salvation is tied to eschatology in the fact that the second coming brought the fullness of salvation. So prior to Christ's parousia, all who died were said to sleep. That brings us to the concept of Sheol. Now to the Hebrew mind, Sheol was simply the state or the abode of the dead. Now, The big debate between Jeff and I is what exactly is Sheol? And i got to tell you here before I go started, okay, uh, all the guys that I respect dearly, Jeff, Mike Sullivan, Bob Cruikshank, they all disagree with me on this, okay? Take that with a grain of salt, okay? I just want you to know, they don't agree with what I'm about to say. I'm hoping maybe I can put a little ding in there, uh, their theology with this, but this is something, you know, Jeff and I have talked about for a while. I just can't get this out of my head. Uh, maybe it's because I'm stubborn. I don't know. Maybe I'm on to something here. But this week, as I was going through this text, it just, uh, it just seemed to verify and help me to solidify my belief on this whole thing. So let's, uh, let's look at this. And here's the thing. Now, I already told you, Mike, Bob, Jeff, they don't agree with me. They're not the only ones because the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew Lexicon and Hastings Bible Dictionary all say Sheol is a place of departed spirits. Okay, and that's the, that's the typical view today of most everybody. 
Okay, when the believer dies, their spirit, but they think the spirit goes to heaven, not to Sheol, and the body goes to the grave. Now, inasmuch as Sheol is often located down in the Tanakh, the Hebrew cosmology is said to include a subterranean, gloomy place like the Babylonian netherworld or Greek Hades. So in the, in the biblical cosmology, we have a flat earth with a dome over it. And underneath the earth is a subterranean place, Hades. This is where the dead go. Okay? So, let's talk about that. The Tanakh uses a lot of metaphors and similes to describe Sheol. But the bottom line is, to me, it's death, okay? So I see Sheol used to speak not of a subterranean place or not of a realm where spirits of the dead are hanging out. I see it as death and the grave. When someone is in Sheol, they're dead, okay? They're sleeping. That's what we talked about today. They're sleeping. They're there, but they're sleeping, But the hope of Israel was resurrection, that Yahweh would rise them from Sheol, rise them from death. And the Bible teaches that all who were in Sheol would be resurrected at the second coming. And we see that in Daniel. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, Yeshua talks about this too, a resurrection of the just and the unjust. But I want you to notice here, okay, he's talking about they're going to be woke, they're going to wake up, okay? But notice where the dead are sleeping. In the dust of the earth. Does that sound like a subterranean place where a bunch of spirits are hanging out? Sounds to me like a grave, okay? I could see that being a grave. So at the second coming, all the dead are raised, the righteous go into the presence of Yahweh, the wicked are cast in the lake of fire. Now, the term Sheol is used 65 times in the Tanakh. I was really tempted to go through every one of them with you this morning, but that would take a couple sessions. So I'm just going to hit on some of them, and I just encourage you to look them all up for yourself. It's not hard. Just find one reference to Shoal, go into your concordance, look up all of them, and see what you see. I've looked at every one of them. I've pondered them. I've read over them. I've meditated on them. And to me, I just a grave will fit in every one of them. Just a grave. So let's look at some of them. And while we're looking at this, I want you to keep in mind the idea of death as sleep. Okay? Shoal is used four times in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 44, 31 says, As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will be brought down, down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Shoal. Now here Jacob, they said, is in danger of going down to Sheol, mourning for his son. Now death here is parallel with going down to Sheol. And I think the translation grave here, that the King James uses grave for Sheol here. It says, our father, he was said, bring down his gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. I think that's a very suitable, that's what he's talking about here. Okay, he's going to be so disturbed, he's going to go down to the grave in this great sorrow. All right, look at number 1630. But if Yahweh creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised Yahweh. Let's talk about Korah 
and his company. And it says in the text, they went down alive into Sheol. But it wasn't only Korah that went. His bunch of people went with them. And he says, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, all the people who belonged to Korah, this whole great company, and all their goods, so that all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Okay, so their houses, their tents, their goods, these other people, they all went down. Korah and his people, all their goods, listen, did not go to a subterranean place of departed spirits. Where'd they go? Into the earth. The obvious meaning here is that their goods with them were buried alive. The earth opened up, they all fell in, the earth closed up. Okay? Korah was simply buried alive. He went to Sheol, the text says. The grave, he went to the grave alive. His body and spirit both went to Sheol alive. Now remember, I read the dictionaries, they said Sheol is a place of departed spirits. His body's going. His tents are going. His household goods are going. So contrary to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, contrary to Brown, Driver, Briggs, Hebrew Lexicon, and contrary to Hastings Bible Dictionary that say that Sheol is a place of departed spirits, here we see people going bodily and alive into Sheol. Let's move on. 1 Samuel 2.6 Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Now the context here, Hannah is exalting Yahweh's power and his goodness. And the, po- the poetic parallel here is Yahweh kills and he brings to life. Raises up here has nothing to do with shades or with resurrection. It merely means preserving life from death in this context. God brings down, in other words, he kills, he raises up, he keeps people alive. He does both. All right, Psalm 18, 4 through 5. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assail me. The cords of Sheol entangle me. The snares of death confronted me. David here is talking about death in the grave. He speaks of them as the king of terrors, as we would say, but no abode of departed spirits is in view here. It's Is David's spirit being bound by cords here? He said, the cords of Sheol entangle me. Now, I understand there's a lot of figurative language used here, all right? In 1 Kings 2, 6, and 7, David advises Solomon, his son, to bring down Joab and Shimei to Sheol. What did he mean by that? Kill them. (laughs) Put them in the grave, okay? That's what I want you to do with them. That's all that's implied in that text. Look at Job 17, 13 through 16. I hope for Sheol as my house. If I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you're my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Job is talking about the death. He's talking about the grave. But I want you to notice what he says here. He says, if I make my bed in darkness, so it's a bed, you're laying down and it's dark. He calls it a pit. That would kind of fit with the grave. He talks about the worms being there. 
Okay, does that sound like a grave? Worms are there. Okay, remember, they're not putting people in vaults at this time. All right, they're putting them in caves or sticking them in the dirt. Worms are eating them. He's talking about the dust. Together we're in the dust. It's just, they all picture a grave to me. It's not a holding cell for spirits. It's just, I'm going to go to the dirt. Job 14, 13. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. That you would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. This is basically the equivalent of wishing for death. (laughs) Lord, I wish I was dead. Hide me in the grave. Okay? Life's too rough. Get rid of me. All right. All right. Now, these two don't mention Sheol, but I wanted to bring them in because I want you to see something that's pretty cool here that is not that clear in the English. Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? That's a great question, isn't it? Everybody should be thinking about something like that. Okay, what happens after death? Job says, all the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Now, the word renewal here is halifa, which is interesting here because if you look at verse 7, he says this in verse 7, for there is hope for a tree. If it be cut down, it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Well, the word sprout here is halaf, which is derived from the same root as Halifa, renewal, in verse 14. So Job is expressing his faith that God has reserved a sprouting again, a resurrection for man. So here we see a veiled reference to the resurrection. Verse 7 says, For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again. I have a living, visible illustration of this in my backyard. I got a tree out there. I've cut it down three times in the last 30 years, and it's still there, and it's beautiful because it re-sprouts and new branches grow, and it just, you know, it gets too big, and I keep it cut down, and it comes back. Resurrection. That's what Job's talking about here in his veiled sense. He knows death isn't the end of it. Psalm 16.10. For you have not abandoned my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. What's this talking about? Soul and chill. Huh? <laughs> soul and chill. What is the word soul here? It's nephish. What does nephish mean? Breath or life. <laughs> Breath or life. That's what nephish means, okay? Now, what Psalm here is, t- this is talking about Christ. We know that from the New Testament, Acts 2.31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. We could translate Psalm 16.10 this way, for you will not abandon me to the grave or let my body see corruption. This verse teaches a resurrection of the body from the grave. And it clearly applies to Christ. As the New Testament indicates that. But listen, people, here's what I want you to see here. This is talking about Christ's body, not seeing corruption. It's his body that's in Sheol. Okay? Not a departed spirit. His body was brought out of the grave, so it did not see corruption. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Amen? Now listen, 
If you spank your child, this is saying he won't go to the place of departed spirits. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, listen, if you want to preserve your child from an untimely death, beat the snot out of that kid when he needs it, okay? Don't put him in a timeout. You know, <laughs> give him what he needs. Bring out the rod and spare his life from death. Isaiah 14, 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots, are laid as a bed underneath you, and worms are your covers. <laughs> this says that the king of Babylon, this was referencing the king of Babylon, is brought down to Sheol, and notice that it's a place of maggots and worms where he's making his bed. Does that sound like a grave to you? That's what it sounds like to me. It doesn't sound like a place of departed spirits. How are these spirits going to be affected by these maggots? I mean, we got departed spirits, which, okay, I just have to admit, I can't wrap my head around a departed spirit. What is it? A wisp? A, flo- a float? Can you see it? Huh? A breath? <laughs> okay. Are, are this, is this breath being affected by maggots and worms somehow? Uh, I, don't, I don't see it. Okay, let's move on. Hosea 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. This is a promise of resurrection. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where's your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, the parallel here to Sheol is death. The passage is most naturally taken to refer to the grave, and this is how it's used in 1 Corinthians where he quotes it. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? This passage loses its point if Sheol is taken as a place of departed spirits. Talking about the grave and victory over the grave. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay, so he says, listen, there's no thought, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom in Sheol. If this means the grave, it's true. The body sits still in the grave, doesn't do anything. But if this means the abode of departed conscious spirits, then it's not true. See, scholars today teach that before the second coming, the bodies of the dead go into the grave and they sleep. But their soul spirit goes to heaven and they are conscious. And they are waiting on the resurrection. So I guess we have this full consciousness of these spirits, and they're floating around saying, when do we get out of this place, you know, and I, I don't understand that. But the Bible teaches that there is no praise to God and no remembrance of God in Sheol. That fits with death to me. Look at Psalm 88, 10 through 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed raise and praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of the forgetfulness? So, Sheol is a place of darkness. We've, used, we've seen that many, many times. And he's asked here, do the departed spirits praise you? Listen, if there's a consciousness of believers in Sheol, why would they not be praising God? Psalm 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. Well, that's not what they teach. 
They teach that the people are departed and there's a consciousness. But it says there's no remembrance of God. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I mean, if you're if these are believers, and everybody goes to Sheol, but believers, old covenant believers are in Sheol, why wouldn't they be praising God if there's a consciousness? Let everything that is supposed to praise God. Why aren't they praising Him? Psalm 115.7, the dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any who go down in silence. Again, this place is silent, it's quiet. These departed spirits obviously don't have mouths because there's no one talking down there. Um, The scriptures teach that man and animal all go to the same place. Now, if that's talking about the grave, then we understand it, right? Does everything dies and goes to the dirt? Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. Animal dies, you put in the grave. Person dies, you put him in the grave. Psalm 89, 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. That's interesting. So do these departed spirits have a form? And what does it mean their form shall be consumed in Sheol? Now, if that's the grave, can you understand the body rotting? Yeah. I mean, you're in the grave, you got maggots, you got worms, they're eating you, you're, you're, you're okay, the, the form is consumed in Sheol. Sounds to me like your body's rotting away. Psalm 49.20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Now now notice what Yeshua teaches in John 5 about the dead. 5.25, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Now, hang on to that thought. The hour is coming, but he says it's here now. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So those who were to hear Yeshua's voice, and they were to come to life. This is talking about living people who are spiritually dead. Because he says the hour is coming and now is. It's right now the dead are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. This is spiritual life. Giving life to the dead. But then you drop down a few verses, 28 to 29. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Okay, nothing here and now is. Just an hour is coming. When all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So where are these dead ones? Well, they are in Sheol, which is called the tomb or the grave. At the resurrection, they come out of the tombs. Now, the Lord could have used different words here. He could have said something different, but I think he's making it very clear. The graves are going to come, the people are coming out of the graves. Now, no, I don't mean in a bodily fashion. Okay, no, not they're not coming, the bodies aren't coming out of the graves. Okay. They are coming out of the graves. All right. This is synonymous with the dead coming to life. The voice of the Son of God is the life-giving voice of God. This is one of the themes of the fourth gospel. Yeshua brings life to the dead. All right, so in my understanding, at this time, a, my AT position at this time, is Shoal is not a cavern below the earth's crust. It's a grave dug in the ground. It's a hole. Boom. Everybody goes to the grave. Okay? Boom. You're stuck in there. 
All go to Sheol without moral distinction because the grave is the common end of all life. And there's no clear case in the scripture where there's punishment in Sheol. It's great. You don't punish, you're just dead. Okay, you're sleeping. Now, yes, I'm aware of Luke 16. Okay, I know that's in the Bible. I read it a few times. But I don't think it's talking about the afterlife. That's the problem. Everybody says, well, this is a parable about the afterlife. I don't think there's parables about the afterlife. If it's, it is, it's the only parable there is. The parables that the Lord tells are about Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem and what's going to happen. That's what he focuses on in his parables. Now, in this parable of Lazarus and the rich man, we see it's interesting that Lazarus is there because he said, oh, if someone raises from the grave, they'd listen. Well, after that, Lazarus did rise from the grave. Okay? So it's interesting that his name was Lazarus. But the rich man says, listen, could you, could you send somebody home to my brothers? I have five brothers. Could you send someone there? I don't want them to come to this place of torment. And what, does, what does Abraham say then? Anybody know? He said, will you send someone? What does Abraham say? He said, no, he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they don't need somebody to go back and tell them. The Word of God already tells them this. Now, here's my question to you, and think about this. Where in the Tanakh does it say anything about the afterlife or hell? It doesn't. But where in the Tanakh does it talk about the destruction of Jerusalem? Over and over and over. And I think that's what he's saying here. Listen, Moses and the prophets already told him this was going to come if you walked away from God. Okay? So that's what they need to listen to. So I think that's, again, this is not about the afterlife. It had plenty to say, the Tanakh did, about Jerusalem and the destruction. I think the fact that death is called sleep for believers is very significant. I just do. I mean, why would you use that? Sleep portrays what death means for a believer. As the sleeper does not cease to exist while the body sleeps, so the dead person, they continue to exist. The grave is like a bed. C.H. Hodge writes this, The object of the metaphor is to suggest that as the sleeper does not cease to exist while his body sleeps, so the dead person continues to exist despite his absence from the region in which those who remain can communicate with him. And that, as sleep is known to be temporary, so the death of the body will be found to be. Sleep has its waking, death has its resurrection. Now, all, this is important, so get this, okay? If you tune me out, tune me back in for a second. All, everything I said about Sheol so far changed in AD 70. At the second coming, it all changed. No more Sheol. Now, people still go to the grave. I get that. Okay. But resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies out of the grave. It's about restoring man to the presence of God. And God took men out of Sheol, the grave, and brought them into the presence of God in AD 70. Not their bodies, but them. They received a new body. Now, be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord, that's what the Bible calls resurrection. Resurrection is from the Greek word anastasis, and it means a standing up. And see, to me, this whole concept makes resurrection even make more sense. Because we think of resurrection, you're coming out of the grave. And to me, that's what it is. Again, not physically, but coming out of the grave. You've been sleeping, you're waking up. 
It's going into the presence of God. Now, according to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, the scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was to be end of the old covenant age. We saw that in Daniel, all right? We know this to have happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. So the resurrection of the dead took place in AD 70 when our Lord took the righteous dead out of Sheol, moved them into the presence of God. They were no longer separated from God, dead. They're now in His presence and they are alive. What about us? And this is the important thing here. Um, This whole thing of Sheol, what you believe about it. I don't really have a dog in the fight because it's history. Whatever it was is different right now. Okay? What about us? What about believers? What happens when we die? Do we go to Sheol? No. Will we be resurrected? No, we won't be resurrected. The resurrection is past. That happened to believers in 80, prior to AD 70. So what happens to believers now when they die? Well, their physical body goes to dust. That's where it came from. Ecclesiastes 3.20. All go to one place. All are from dust. To dust they return. But the spirit, our spirit, when, the moment we die, moves into the realm of heaven. And the reason that happens is because believers are already alive in Christ. We've had a resurrection. We were resurrected with Christ. We're not waiting for some later time after we're dead to be resurrected. So people are right when they're at the funeral saying they're with Christ, but they're wrong about their eschatology. If their eschatology was right, they would understand why that's true. All right? Look at Romans 6, 4 through 7. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So he says, you're being buried with Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in His death, we were united with Christ in His death. He died, we died. This is talking about identification. Like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in the resurrection. We died with Christ, we raised with Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with Him, We were crucified with Christ. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. We were raised with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Listen, believers have already died and been raised from the dead. Coming into the new covenant by faith in Christ is a resurrection. God gives us life. He quickens you. He makes you alive. You can't get into the kingdom of God You can't get into the new covenant if you have not been resurrected from the dead. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. The resurrection was a one-time event in which the old covenant saints were brought out of Sheol and finally overcame death to be with the Lord. We believers today, we have put on immortality. We'll talk about that next week. Okay, When the Lord returned, the dead were raised, the believers put on immortality, and when we die, we go to heaven. When we physically, when this body physically gives up, we go to heaven. We go into the presence of God. At physical death, we simply drop the flesh and move into the spiritual realm. Believers no longer sleep at death. There's no sleep for us anymore. We are alive in Christ now, and at the death of the physical body, we'll move into the spiritual realm with a spiritual body where we will forever be with the Lord. Yeshua said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Okay, I'm resurrection to those believers that are dead. 
They have to be raised. I'm life to people who are alive and believe in me. I'm the life. And if you have life, you don't need to be resurrected. That's why I said I'm the resurrection and the life. Okay? Both were true. All right. Let's see if we can finish this verse. (laughs) He says that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. So I don't want you to be ignorant about the sleeping. And the reason I want you to be ignorant, again, this is what I said earlier, that here is a hint of purpose clause. This is the purpose, the aim or the goal. He wanted them to remove their ignorance to relieve their grief. See, if you know the truth, you don't have to grieve, all right? The verb grieve here is a present passive subjunctive of lupeo, and it means to distress, to, be, to cause grief, to grieve, to be in heaviness. People, grieving is natural even for Christians when the death of a loved one occurs. I mean, if you care about somebody and they die, it's going to bother you. Remember the Lord standing at Lazarus' grave, and he knows I'm about to raise this man from the dead. And he weeps. He weeps. Jesus wept, it says. He's grieved over the death. He's grieved over what sin caused, all right? So we, we Christians, of course we grieve over the loss of loved ones. We don't, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope at all. It's just temporary. We sorrow because something we love has been taken from us. And we can't call them anymore. We can't just pick up the phone and call them. I was in my office Friday, and I was on a phone call, and I was just really excited about the call, and I hung up, and I, and I wanted to call Steve. I said, i got to call Steve and tell him. And I'm like, I can't. Steve's gone. So, you know, we grieve. I, I wish I could have called him and told him what was going on, but I couldn't. So I called his wife and told her. <laughs> just to make the connection. <laughs> And we grieve because we can't see them anymore, can't go visit them, can't talk to them. But we don't grieve like others. And that's what he says here. We grieve not as others who don't have hope. The others here refers to the lost. It's those who don't know Christ. The pagan world is at a loss for comfort at death. There's nothing to say. Socrates said this, Oh, that there was some divine word upon which we could more securely and less perilously sail upon the stronger vessel. In other words, oh, when death, there's just nothing, there's no hope for us. You know, ancient writings are full of this pessimism regarding death. Aeschylus said this, of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. You're dead, you're gone, that's the end of it, right? Theocritus said this, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. And then we have Catullus who said, Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our grief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. And we have to remember that Thessalonica was a city without hope. Before Paul got to Thessalonica, there's no Christians there. He gets there, he establishes a church. Thessalonica was a city known for its materialism, known for its perversion, its sexuality. It was like a modern city. In this city, there were great <clears throat> there were gravestones that said things like "After death, no reviving; after grave, no meeting." It was just there was no hope there. It was a a place predominantly a heathen place in which there was no hope of anything after this life, which we live now, and that's sad. But here's what Paul's trying to tell us: things are different for believers. Death is not the end; physical death. It is just 
a temporary goodbye. They've gone to take a nap. Okay, we will see them again, although they're not napping. They're in the presence of the Lord right now. All right, they're in his presence. We're separated from them, but someday we'll join him. So Paul writes to encourage them that their dead loved ones, they're not going to miss out on the second coming. And we'll get into that next week as we talk about the rapture. Because Paul tells them, listen, they're going to rise to meet the Lord. They're actually going to go ahead of us. So believers, we have hope in death. And we're the only people who do. Because we know that Christ has overcome death. And if we trusted him already, then we have life. And that life will never end. It's eternal. Physical death, the body goes We go to heaven to receive a new, glorified body that will be absolutely amazing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I ask that you just give us a heart of Bereans. May we search it. May we dig through it. May we ponder over it to seek to understand what it tells us, Lord. Father, I thank you that today, Shoal is empty, Lord. Believers... No one's going there anymore. Yes, the body does go to the grave, but we immediately go into your presence. And I rejoice in that, Lord. There's no sting to death anymore. It's been taken out by Christ. Thank you, Father, for the glorious truth of what we have. And Yeshua, your son. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Questions? Comments? I had one Write them down. All right, good question. I should have anticipated this question. Jill asked, where did Christ go after his death and before his resurrection when he preached to the captives? I'm going to have to teach on that passage because there's a lot of misunderstanding there. I uh, I don't understand that. I don't think Christ went anywhere to do anything. Uh, like I said, there's not, unless it's to, unless he went to preach to the angels that were imprisoned at that time. Because, like I said, to me, the grave is, it, they're in the grave. There's nothing there, you know, to him to speak to a bunch of dead people who are sleeping. Uh, John asks, did the Hebrew mind separate the concepts of the body and soul or did they see the body and soul as inseparable parts that make up a whole living being as the breath of life? Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, it's hard to understand. You know, people say, well, the Jews believe this. The Jews, like today, believed a lot of different things, okay? But I think their concept of they didn't divide the body up. Like he said, they didn't, you know, say, okay, the soul, body, soul, and spirit. They, they just had a concept of man as a person, the whole. That's who you were. He says, if the latter, it would seem to agree with your stance on Sheol not being the, uh, an abode of disembodied spirit soul. Plus, if a man is spiritually dead in sin, how could his spirit live on in Sheol? Well, that's because, I think they would say, because there has been no resurrection yet, so they're all just waiting for the judgment and the resurrection. Just Someone writes, just watched, and my question is, do you or your church have any programs that I can be involved in to carry the Word of God out to the nations, people around us? 
No, we don't have any programs. That's just the calling of God that we take the Word of God to all around us. You know, I get a lot of emails from out of country wanting materials. The only materials we have are online. And they're free, and they're, there's tons of them. There's two over 2,000 messages. They're in video form. They're in audio form. They're in text form. I had someone write me this week, is there any chance of getting any manuscripts on any of your stuff? I'm like, yeah, they're all online. You know, you just click on the right thing and you'll get it. You know, and I, and I know, you know, I keep telling Jeff, we got to make this so simple. <laughs> and we tried. But, you know, when you pull up, like, the book of Thessalonians, you know, and it has the title and the scripture reference, and then it has a little audio symbol, a little video symbol. If you click on the, re- the word itself with the title, it brings up the text. So we try to make it as clear as possible, but again, it's still, you know, I, and I just encourage people, let, let me say this while we're talking about this. I get email constantly and it's overwhelming. Okay, and if you email me on a day when I have some extra time, I probably might answer you, but not very often, okay, because like I said, it's just too overwhelming, and everybody's got these questions, what do you say about that, what do you, okay, it's online, go to the website, go to the search engine, type in what you're looking for, and it'll tell you what I think or believe about that, I can't tell you anything different, and it just saved me the time of trying to do that, because folks, listen, my time all I want to do when I'm in that office is study. I don't want to be answering emails. I don't want to be talking. You know, I, I mean, and there's times I understand people have questions. You got to try to, you know, like I was in a conference call this week with a couple pastors from uh, Arkansas. And I, and I love doing stuff like that. And I love talking to people and helping. I, I, you're, you're better off trying to call me than email me probably because I don't mind talking, but I'm not crazy about emailing. But again, my time is dedicated to studying and teaching so I can get this stuff out and I, I just can't deal with all the emails that come in. I, I just physically can't do it, or I'd, something would have to go. And my wife really wants me to spend a little bit of time with her, so yeah, go. i got to squeeze that in, and i got a granddaughter, and, you know, other things that do come up. Life, I have a life, you know. <laughs> do I? Get her a boy. <laughs> well, right now, Betty's here, so she's not taking up much of my time. Betty and her can go off and, and do things, and I'm... I'm I got some free time right now, so. <laughs> Anthony? Okay, they're the people with computers and everything. Everybody don't have computers, but I guess the Bible's a name source, but a lot of people probably want a quick and fast and easy answer, but some people probably don't have computers to do that research, like, like it's available to them on a computer or their own. Yeah. A lot of people will be somewhat more lost than others with the question. <laughs> All right, Dana asked, uh, so do other teachers hold to, hold to more traditional view that she, oh, I guess it's supposed to be Sheol, is a holding place much like we would consider hell from an evangelical standpoint? No, Sheol and hell are not, there's nothing, they're, they're totally different places, okay? Sheol's not a place of suffering, it's a holding place, all right? There's no connection with hell as far as Sheol goes. Don't, don't mix those two up. Um, do what? Only because New Testament translates all those Hades words to hell. It's confusing. Right, yeah. And that's, again, like Jeff said, mistranslation. They translate Hades as hell. Bad translation, okay? They translate Gehenna as hell. Bad translation, okay? Hell should not be seen anywhere in your Bible. Lake of fire. 
It's not a bad, it's a bad translation. Oh, look at that. Outstanding message today. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <clears throat> okay, Mike. Mike Sullivan. I already told him you disagree with me, okay? Jesus in John 3.13 gives exceptions. Gives no exceptions. I disagree with you strongly. I think that passage in John 3.13 is not talking about nobody's ever gone to heaven. He is quoting from the Old Testament, and he is saying no one's gone to heaven to bring down knowledge. That's the whole thing with that passage. It's not saying nobody's ever gone to heaven. And I think there's exceptions to everything. And God can make an exception anytime he wants to make an exception. Okay? You know, people, we get in these arguments about where do babies go? I say, if they're elect, they go to heaven. But they don't believe. That's because they're not capable of believing. But if God has chosen them, they're going to heaven. God can do, he's God. Yes, he gives us a standard. And yes, this is how things normally are. Mike talks about Enoch in here. I know what Enoch talks about. Enoch also talks about hell, and I don't believe in that either. Okay? So I don't, you know, Enoch is not Scripture. And here's the thing. My view today was presented from the Scriptures. That's what I'm using. You want to go outside and bring other stuff in? Okay, maybe you can argue something different. You'll have a hard time arguing this position from the Scriptures. Chris in Ohio says, just want to say thanks for your preaching and teaching. Appreciate that, Chris. I appreciate you watching. appreciate you writing in. Okay, question here. How were the spirits conjured up? Um, if you're referring to Samuel, maybe? You know, people say, well, Samuel proves that there was a waiting place. Really? How's it Samuel prove that? God brought Samuel up, right? She saw him. She goes, oh, that's Samuel. Okay, what if Samuel was sleeping and God woke him up and said, I need you for a second. Come do this. Huh? No, him sleeping. See, that's the whole the concept of sleeping is the whole person, not just the body. You're sleeping when you sleep. Does your body sleep or do you sleep? Okay, you're sleeping. That's what I'm saying. Right, right. And I think the body, obviously the body came with him. She saw a bodily form. So she Samuel, saw it. Samuel's rotted, maggot body. Well, God out. also put it back together so she could see it. I mean, if you go from the view of Shoals a waiting place, then God had to give a body so he could show up. Spirit body. He's well, spirit. Okay, spirit body. Well, spirit is body. that harder to do than a physical body? It has to be a body. It's already dark enough. How do they know what Samuel looked like? Yeah, that's the thing. I, again, there's so many questions there. How does she know what Samuel Did she see Samuel? She had a picture of him? I mean, I. You she know, was all maybe she. All right, Jan says the other view of Shoal Hades seems to be a little dismal and hopeless, and that a loving God would have that for those He loved. Well, it was just a waiting place. So again, there's no torture in Shoal. It's just a waiting place. And again, you know, they most people say it's a conscious waiting place. I guess that's no, not true. Those who understand Shoal would say it's a, it's a waiting place, conscious waiting place, but moderns say they're not in Shoal, they're actually in heaven with the Lord. So, <laughs> Someone's being funny here, maybe. <laughs> Here's the question. 
Is this information that was presented here? No, that's not even. That's not even from today. Okay, sorry. I was going to say it says was this information that was presented here in one of your books, and I'm like, I doubt it because I don't have any. Okay, so <laughs> I really doubt it's in the book. Okay, here's the question: What do Mike and Bob and Jeff think Shoal is? They think it's a waiting place. Yeah, Jeff's done several messages on it. You can find out what he believes. They believe it's a conscious waiting place where spirits are hanging around waiting. Okay? Existing. I, I think you're existing. We're just sleeping. Okay. Here, I don't know where, I don't know where this came from. Do we hear you correctly? You believe the earth is flat? <laughs> What I said was, and you can rewind it because that's a good thing about you know video. You can rewind it and say what I said is biblical cosmology is a flat Earth with a dome over it. Okay, that's what the Bible teaches. All right, it teaches a subterranean place. Now Jeff says if you know if you don't buy the subterranean place, you can't buy the flat Earth. The Bible also taught about the cosmic tree. In the center of the earth, there's a cosmic tree that goes to heaven. I don't know anybody believes in that, but that's what they taught. Okay? So there's something, you know, we just have to try to figure out what is this is. I'm going to pass on that, Jeff. I'm going to, I'm going to be smart and move on. Okay, uh, <clears throat> this I'm not sure who this is from. It said, David, I was born in 1983, Assembly of God, for the next 30 years. Then about seven years ago, I became a preterist. Since then, I learned that so many doctrines I was taught aren't biblical. But I know I was a true believer. Why does God make things seem so hard to figure out? Frustrated in Colorado. Okay, frustrated in Colorado. That's a good question. Here's the problem. We are not familiar with the Scriptures. Most people don't read the Bible. Most Christians don't read their Bible. If, you would, if we could just get people to read it, they'd have a better understanding of what it's all about. And yes, there is confusion. Listen, the church has a voice saying everything. Every doctrine, every imagination. It's just like the health community. Everybody's saying something different. Every, you know, all these different voices. You got to get in the scripture, you got to find out whatever you believe is backed up by scripture and the analogy of scripture because scripture doesn't contradict itself. So yeah, it ta- it's not easy. In Proverbs 2 God says when you search for me as for gold and search for me as lost treasure, then you'll understand the knowledge of God. How many people do that? You know when there was a gold rush, people gave up everything and went out to try to get some gold. Their whole life was focused on getting gold. If your whole life is focused on knowing God, shut off the TV, get away from the video game, spend time in the Word of God, pour your life into this, and it, and it becomes less confusing. Now, the Bible's a big book, I understand that, and it's vast, and there's a lot to try to understand there. But that's why if you just read it and be patient, it's not fast food, okay? you got a year after year after year. And when you're reading, then you're going to read something and you're say, in Exodus, you're going to say, oh, my word, Paul said that. He said, you know, and you're, the things will start coming together and it get more and more exciting. 
All right, question, is the soul mortal or immortal? Is it the soul that stands before Christ to be judged after the physical death? The Bible says, at the second Christ, they put on immortality. I believe man is born mortal, okay? He doesn't have immortality. He is given immortality at faith in Christ. That's why I don't believe in hell. You, these people don't need to go anywhere. They're gone. They're, they're mortal. They die. They're gone. Okay? Uh, that's, that's my position there. Okay. <laughs> I keep getting questions. Jan, you need to write these questions to Bob, to Mike, and to Jeff, because I don't want to answer for them. She's asking, and you guys here, uh, Bob, Jeff, and Mike believe Luke 16 is about Sheol Hades or AD 70. Jeff said no. Okay, Jeff is saying he doesn't think Luke 16 is afterlife, but you, Luke 16 is coming from Enoch, he says. Uh, yeah, using, and I agree with that. I just think the imagery is, I think <clears throat> we're confused on what the imagery is all about there. <laughs> um, Dana writes thank you David for the great teaching please send our blessings to all the worship team the one fourth of your congregation it is amazing one fourth of the church involved in our music how many churches can say that